Hello and welcome to the podcast at the Succulent Journal, where we discuss anything and everything under the sun. Join us in today's episode as in honor of LGBT History Month, we discuss the possible correlation between implementing socialism and theoretically improving LGBT rights. We will also further discuss how LGBT rights lead to higher economic output and the cycle that exists between capitalism and LGBT rights. Recent theorization that socialism is the cure for the problems of capitalism have been quite prevalent all over the abyss of social media and Instagram infographics, um, which at best are a potpourri of interesting ideas with not always very grounded basis in reality. In fact, the kind of overarching theme of this episode is going to be how it was more the capitalist reality than the socialist dream that has actually led to increased acceptance of the LGBT movement and to LGBT liberation. There have been many LGBTQ activists, notably many white socialist activists, who have went out of their way to distort the truth about socialism, even when the leaders of actual socialist countries have admitted to their oppressive failures. Now, a lot of these gay intellectuals have theorized a lot about this economic movement, but they lived in a capitalistic, or shall we say, market-based reality, which was the one that liberated them and gave the LGBT community the rights and the dignity that they have fought for so long. Now, we're not saying that LGBT rights are a product of capitalism or that all forms of socialism or communism are opposed to it. But we need to take cognizance of the fact that capitalism and socialism are both economic theories, not social ones. But because the two are economic theories and the economy only exists so long as society does, it is not surprising that their theorizations do indeed have social impact. Now, given that socialism has actually been implemented in the past, I think it's really important that we focus on the historical aspect first of some of these economic movements in order to understand how they could function in today's day and age. Just based on both superficial research and slightly deeper analysis, every last bit of history proves otherwise. That is, every last bit of history does not strongly suggest that socialism will be the end-all or indeed even the first step in eliminating the remaining oppression of the LGBT community. In fact, one of the things that worries me nowadays is that there is almost an echo chamber with too much reliance on socialists alone and that is quite an ineffectual method because currently they are nowhere in a stable position of power. Now inherently whether your views align with leftism, the right wing, conservatism, whatever it is, Any sort of overbearing reliance on one party will often lead to disappointment. And this was actually quite common with gays and lesbians in in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. Um, It was quite disappointing that even when they did work within socialist parties to, to call upon for reform, they were often seen as subordinate and made to abandon their own goals in favor of party platforms. And that really isn't what LGBT liberation should be about. In fact, even long before the collapse of, of socialism in 
Eastern Europe, um, East Germany, and the former Soviet Union. It seems as though historically gay and lesbian movements began developing their own independent politics that were autonomous and unrelated to parties, or at least not directly affiliated with them. Not only that, but reliance on one single party to fight for your rights and to fight against your oppression is simply on a logical basis not the most effective tactic. While it is true that certain parties will be more lenient towards a progressive mindset than others, it must be said that a single-minded reliance on, let's say, only socialism places a lot of limits on lobbying with other parties and in entering compromises. And if there is one thing that is going to eventually lead to wholehearted acceptance of a community, it is knowing how to compromise and lobby with other people. But in fact, when human rights issues are concerned, particularly with the LGBT, I think it should be the parties trying to appeal to the gay movement and to their liberation rather than vice versa. We don't need to desire politics. Rather, politics itself should desire to create more favorable and progressive living conditions in which everyone can truly thrive and be a contributing member of society. This goes far beyond and far above traditional socialist ideologies, which didn't actually inherently have the protection of minorities or oppressed people at its front line. It should also be said that if socialism in the past truly was so progressive, then it must be noted that there were huge discrepancies in places such as East Germany and Soviet Russia, in which we can say the latter was far from friendly towards the LGBT community, and in fact, to this day, Eastern Europe is one of the least friendly places for this community. And some people might say that East Germans interpreted socialism differently, but I say this is naive and simply a way of trying to glorify something that didn't achieve that much. Rather, it was German cultural values, not any type of what whether it was socialism, communism, or any economic system that led to this progressive cultural reform. Now, I should probably clarify, I'm not arguing that socialism and communism are inherently anti-LGBTQ and that capitalism is inherently pro these values. But in the past, and if history is any indicator of what is to happen in the future, Neither socialism nor communism have been the best system for LGBTQ people. In fact, even nowadays, countries that are actually socialists, such as Venezuela and Cuba, rank the lowest globally as far as LGBT rights are concerned. Many people will use countries such as Sweden, Canada, and Norway as stellar examples of why socialism is clearly the best answer for LGBT people. But... In actual fact, it must be said that social democracies and socialism are not to be confused. Just because things work there does not mean that these countries are not inherently capitalist, because they are. These are all market-based economies in which the government doesn't actually set the price point for cars, for instance. And that is why this distinction must be made. But of course... That doesn't mean to say that we should one-sidedly agree that capitalism is by far the best thing for any sort of liberation. 
If we are going to take the most nuanced and objective view possible, the social progress of LGBTQ plus rights in different countries under different system has been so haphazard that it's pointless to try and attribute it to, to one economic system, to one set of social values that has been the best for these people. It is a far more nuanced and complex vision than this, and that is why we cannot rely on purely one type of economic system to necessarily bring about liberation for anyone. To add to the statement that neither one, nor capitalism, nor socialism, is the single best ideology for LGBT rights, it should also be put that just like there's a difference drawn between the shades of socialism and communism, there's a similar range of ideologies within the umbrella term, which is capitalism. The mainstream narrative that you see on social media like Instagram or even in news outlets nowadays, which suggests that capitalism is a dogma, it's simply not true. And the evidence lies in the different free market economies in today's world. The US, for example, it's prime for neoliberal capitalism. While at its core, neoliberal capitalism still advocates for privatization, um, free trade, and most other mainstream narratives of capitalism. Where it fails is that it allows for laissez-faire capitalism to be dialed up to 100 and this is why today there's such fear of monopolies emerging in the US market. The problem with laissez-faire capitalism dialed up to such a degree is that there is very, very little oversight of the government or some other authority over what business practices are going on in the market. And the reason why the US is suffering right now is because there's simply not enough demand for governments to intervene in the market, which is so obviously at a brink of failure. And that is not advocating for socialism. Rather, it's advocating for forces which keep the free market healthy. You can also look at other countries such as the United Kingdom, Canada and Australia. They're all other examples of neoliberal capitalism, though I should say it's much less pronounced in their markets compared to the American one. And usually in these countries, the neoliberal ideologies are reserved for few sectors of the larger economy, such as financial services or oil. By far, they're largely regulated free markets, and this makes them prime case studies, actually, for the coexistence of different shades of capitalism. And it is another point of evidence that shows that capitalism is not a single dogma. Take the UK, for example. Its economy is massively reliant on services, which account for almost 80% of its GDP. Um, of that, 25% of it comes simply from the City of London's financial services. In a way, it's a dilemmatic position. You can't argue that the UK economy isn't diversified because it has avenues in medical services, financial services, tourism, transport and the arts. But at the same time, all, they all boil down to the larger umbrella of under-services, which really means providing for others. The UK also has ever-declining religiosity, and to know more about this, um, I would encourage you to give a listen to our previous episode where we discuss religiosity and mental health. Really interesting, that. 
But anyways, coming back to this point, religiosity has historically been the single most forceful ideology afflicting LGBT rights. So in the UK, this combination of services reliance and decreasing religiosity means that the UK economy would actually stand to lose if it became hostile to certain parts of its population. And while, again, capitalism and liberalisation of the economy are not the sole drivers for LGBT rights, because then you're missing out a very important point of societal values, you can see that there is nonetheless a positive correlation between increased liberalisation and globalisation and better living environments for LGBT persons. Now, not only is it important to acknowledge the presence of monopolies in capitalist countries such as the United States, which have really pushed it to the worst extreme, it's also important to say that any economic system, be it capitalism, be it socialism, be it communism, inherently doesn't harbour any sort of emotions or any sort of ethical characteristic. That is to say, capitalism doesn't make people bigoted because capitalism is really just an economic theory at best. Rather, it is people and bigoted individuals who can weaponize any sort of economic system, including capitalism. And what is to say that they cannot do the same with socialism? In fact, this might make me sound like a bit of a skeptic and, well... Perhaps, maybe not everyone is quite on the same libertarian boat, but the government, if you think about it, is truly quite inefficient at delivering any sort of change. And quite frankly, socialism isn't going to stop that necessarily. In fact, I think it's important to look at what the scope of capitalism has allowed in certain states. For instance, in the United States, quite a number of companies actually went about creating non-discrimination policies and providing insurance for domestic partners, as well as transition coverage for people who identified as transgender, way before many states not even recognized the importance of LGBT rights, but even went on to legalize same-sex marriage and passing non-discrimination ordinances. Essentially, it was the free market that had pushed companies and workforces to become progressive and more open and welcoming and to help liberation than the government. And a lot of you might be asking yourselves why, as we did at first, and the answer is social values change, and that is a normal and expected thing. But as social values change, that reflects directly on how money is spent and redirected, which then in turn influences market pressure and it makes other companies feel the urge to be more progressive in order to appeal to their audiences. In fact, these corporations who took the initiative to be more progressive still provide non-discrimination policies even in states where these don't exist and where LGBTQ plus minorities are not protected because Again, not every state in the United States, despite having legalized gay marriage, doesn't actually have protection laws. And now back onto the historical component, um, which I have been focusing on in this episode. I think it's important to look at the 1970s in the United States, um, in which the gay movement really started gaining a lot of momentum and a lot of power. Objectively speaking, socialism was a pretty marginal part of the community, or actually even the gay rights movement as a whole. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Most, if not nearly all gay activists, definitely leaned towards the Democratic Party and towards more liberal, that is, left-leaning viewpoints. But all they did was focus on advancing their own rights through the Democratic Party, which was more willing to accommodate them. But the Democratic Party at the time, and even nowadays, was far from being socialist. And it must be it must be clarified that left-leaning and socialist are very distinct terms. But let's take a step back even further and look at all of the most important advances in human rights that we have seen in modern Western history. Things such as feminism, civil rights, anti-racism, gay rights, and even abolitionism. Where do all of these things originate from? And the answer is really quite simple. They stem from the founding ideas that liberty and the pursuit of happiness are rights that everyone should be guaranteed regardless of their identity, so long as they're not harming anyone. And I think we're all at that stage where we can agree that being a minority does no harm to anyone. This incredible emphasis on civil liberties, personal responsibility, and the individual mind roots itself way back in the days of the Enlightenment. And I guess it can be said that the individualist nature of market, or that is free market capitalism, and the demand for individual rights inspired this revolutionary thinking and mindset that Yes, individual civil rights are something that need to be placed as a forefront, that equality is a battle worth fighting for. And again, perhaps I'm skeptical, perhaps I'm slightly cynical, but I don't see why socialism is being given all the credit when it was actually the people way back before, the thinkers of the Enlightenment, who first emphasized the necessity and the power of individual rights and why equality and these aforementioned individual rights must be extended to absolutely everyone and not just the select elite that religious institutions such as the Catholic Church used to covet. And these ideas of individual rights and individualism as a whole come under libertarianism. And another facet of libertarianism is globalization, which is also shared by the free market ideology. Because globalism transforms the market from a domestic one to an international platform. Globalization of markets leads not just to freer trade, but it also inevitably means that ideologies are not bound anymore by their national borders. As people, even historically, started to trade more, they came into contact with others who had different cultural values with new ideologies. And so it's but natural that these cultures would share with each other not just goods, but also thoughts. As a modern-day example of globalization championing LGBT rights, uh, you have to look no further than the 2000 EU Employment Equality Directive, which was a trigger for the UK to pass further reinforced anti-discrimination laws to protect sexual orientation, where they previously only included race, sex, and disability. Even more so, the EU membership criteria, which they call the Copenhagen criteria, they require that um, any member state who wishes to be part of the EU uh, has protection for minorities and has a functioning democracy. To add to this, capitalism, 
either directly led to or was in some way linked to industrialization, which eventually led to urbanization, which at the very beginning, and perhaps even right now, was a very positive thing because it offered anyone the chance to live anonymously in a city far away, um, away from the, the, the harsh social system or the harsh social grounding of their families or communities. And not only that, it simply provided people the chance to find others who share their interests. To put it quite briefly, urbanization is, at least in my opinion, the number one thing that has allowed people to break free from perhaps oppressive, unsupportive families to start fresh in a place where they would probably be judged far less and where they wouldn't be living under the same stigma. And when urbanization gets an international footing, it becomes globalization as people move to different cities beyond the national borders of whatever country they live in. And other avenues in which globalization could be helpful is in making LGBT plus persons more visible in the larger society. For example, a World Bank survey showed that in Bulgaria, Romania, Czechia and Poland, between 83 to 95% of school students have witnessed negative comments directed at a classmate who was perceived to be LGBT+. Such comments obviously stem from preconceived notions and stereotypes which are often negative in nature. Because there are no in-person relations that um, these people have with um, LGBT plus persons in real life. In fact, in Serbia, for example, which is in a similar region as the aforementioned countries, only 18% of respondents knew an LGBT plus person in their day-to-day -day lives. Globalization forms part of the answer to address this because it abets in increasing this percentage and hence paving the way for increased LGBT plus acceptance, which then means there are legal rights that LGBT plus persons can cite if discriminated against. Free market capitalism anonymizes those it provides for, as Bayer said. But this should not be confused with the invisibility of LGBT plus persons. Invisibility is caused by oppressive laws being enforced, whereas anonymity is a choice, and the free market shelter of anonymity stems from that choice and not of oppression. It means that the facets of your personality you choose to display are not of importance to the market, and neither are your ideologies, insofar that they do not impede on the core concept of equality of opportunity. In fact, equality of opportunity is required for free market capitalism, which is staunchly against concentration of power and monopolistic tendencies. If the ideologies of capitalism do not have this clause underneath them, you risk getting into authoritarian capitalism, like you see almost in the US today. Monopolistic tendencies and power concentrations are identified as market failures, and for very good reason. It's because they're at odds with the very concept of a free market, and it is of dire importance that they be addressed as soon as possible. Market failures, however, do require government intervention. We do not currently have a better way to address them on a societal scale. Sure, a small company could identify failures in its functioning and correct them easily, but what happens when... 7,000 different companies all have wealth and power concentrations and use that to 
um, benefit their own agenda, you need someone to step in, and that's the government and other authorities like the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK. And the government stepping in here, as I said before, does not make it socialist. Capitalism wants small government, but it never has wanted in real life no government because that is anarchic and unproductive. These market failures are ones that manifest as discrimination as well. For example, lobbying with vast sums of money like you see in the US. It's another reason why the US is so split today along lines of homophobia, women's rights, etc. The market failures in the country have not been addressed. In fact, they keep being exacerbated because of the various lobbies. And religiosity is very much prevalent in the US still, especially Catholicism. And religious fundamentalists are an authoritarian counterforce to the liberal ideals of the free market and free market capitalism. So when they use avenues of capitalism as a whole to further their fundamentalism, they create a market failure in the overall free society, and that has economic impacts, which we will explore very soon. So I've already mentioned the benefits of industrialization and urbanization as far as the pursuit of personal liberties is concerned. But another key fact that often gets omitted is that capitalism freed people from feudalism and from the family farm. It was, at the beginning at least, the first force that helped people properly construct their own lives in a market-based society. And in such a way, people were allowed to have enough space for both separate personal and separate professional lives. The pursuit of financial independence away from monopolies before they became so prominent is what gave people ultimately the freedom and affluence to live on their own. And once you have that freedom and affluence, you are no longer constrained to certain values that you disagree with simply because you are dependent on someone else to provide for you. Much the same way, financial freedom means that you don't even have to be dependent on the government for their mercy and their welfare. Because as we have seen, governmental policies can often be very volatile, completely unpredictable, and dependent on whoever next happens to be in power. What we're trying to get at in this episode is that being able to live autonomously through financial independence, not wealth, but simply financial independence, is what will inspire people, or at least what will make it easier for them, to pursue their own liberation, their own personal happiness, and their own path in life. Only in this way are people able to truly flourish when nothing can constrain them. And this is where we have to give credit to libertarians and their classical liberal forebears who got there way before modern day so-called socialists has decided to take on that label. I mean, look at people like Adam Smith and Jeremy Bentham from the Libertarian Party, or look at the Cato or Cato Institute, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, where libertarians were truly like one step ahead of the game on top of that intellectual curves when it came to directly applying the ideas of individual liberty to gay people. Small detour here, but Jeremy Bentham is the dead body we preserve at UCL. Fun fact for the day. You can find him in a glass box in the student centre. So if you ever thought what a glass tomb would look like, UCL has the answer for you. Right, back to the episode. 
So, in fact, it has been widely studied that increase in LGBT plus rights have been simultaneous with greater economic growth and development in countries. This is not to say that it's the main driver of economic output, of course, that's ridiculous, but it is a factor nonetheless. Each country is a different study case, but mostly incomparable to others, unless it is in a bloc like the EU which has membership criteria. This correlation has been explained by many theoretical frameworks. One of them is the human capital approach, where it argues that the inclusion of LGBT plus persons allows them to realize their full economic and output potential without hindrances to their private lives. Other approaches concern themselves with the globalized market, emerging economies who see developed economies upholding LGBT rights, and they think that that's the modern view, they would likely imbibe some of those values in a bid to liberalize their economies and be seen as modern countries and not oppressive countries of the days bygone. On a micro scale, the costs to the economy of LGBT oppression include lost labor time, lost productivity, underinvestment in human capital, and ineffective allocation of human capital, which are all textbook examples of inefficient markets and sources of market failure. Underinvestment in and ineffective allocation of human capital especially has a domino effect because it drags on an economy-wide scale. It is also good to note here that for the vast avenues of output stemming from human capital, we do not yet have an equal vehicle of capital output. That is to say, robot technology cannot replace humans just yet. And the UCLA Williams Institute considered this correlation between LGBT rights and greater economic growth. One such study of this showed that a one-point increase, just a one-point increase in the global acceptance index, was associated with an increase in almost $1,500 in the GDP per capita when considering the American levels of LGBT acceptance in the 1990s versus the 2010s. So you can just imagine coming from very, very religious 1800s US to the US you see today, just how much acceptance of LGBT persons has contributed to the GDP. In fact, when you consider the most inclusive legal environments, and this might slightly be more theoretical than an example derived from real life, but we do have countries which have very, very liberal um, laws and anti-discrimination laws, the UK, for example. In such legal environments, there was an increase of 8,300 US dollars in the GDP per capita. So this really goes to show that for capitalism to flourish, it does not do itself any favors by alienating those who live under it. And that is why the mainstream narrative is so misleading. It presents capitalism to be discriminatory and selfish, but capitalism is only selfish insofar that everybody makes money for themselves and not for someone else, unless they choose to share that money. What the media essentially presents as capitalism is authoritarian capitalism, where individuals in the market have taken advantage of these market failures rather than address them for, to further their own agenda. What we have seen culturally and politically is a mass phenomenon in which 
Women and men who are part of the LGBT community have defined themselves as a new and very powerful minority, with, as Neil has mentioned, a very important economic aspect as well. This development really was only possible through a market-based system of economics, otherwise known as capitalism. Now that we have acknowledged the fact that capitalism has created the conditions for greater freedom and diversity than anything that history before has managed to do, our next challenge should be in knowing how to guard these really good aspects of capitalism that allow for this diversity and freedom of expression and really freedom of existence, but while also protecting people against exploitation, against ugliness, and against further inequalities on every level, whether they be socioeconomic, racial, cultural, ethnic, you name it. So we hope perhaps now it's a bit clearer to see the link between free market capitalism and LGBT rights. Considering the several variables at interplay, including functioning democracies, it is seen that not only does capitalism flow in parallel with LGBT rights, but that LGBT rights themselves are of importance to addressing market failures and ensuring a functioning, healthy free market which can provide equally for everybody who lives in it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Succulent Podcast and Now Journal. We will see you very soon. Bye. Goodbye.